Can you hear me? How would I turn up the... Uh... Yeah. Thank you very much, Andrew, for those very kind words. Uh, and thank you so much for uh, this honour of uh, speaking from a pulpit. Now, I know we brethren people are very careful about who we <laughs> invite to speak. Uh, and you'll be comforted that your elder has done uh, due diligence on, on this matter. <laughs> As a, uh, right, my text this morning is uh, the uh, Gospel of Matthew, uh, the parable of the wise and faithful servant. All right. So the text is actually from uh, chapter uh, chapter twenty four, forty two to fifty one. So you go gospel. But I would read uh, from four, uh, verse forty two onwards. Sorry, actually the the, the parable is in forty five to fifty one. Uh, but I will read from forty two onwards for context. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, that if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So now here's the parable. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants of his household to give them their food at proper time? It will be good for those, for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that, of that servant will come on a day that he does not expect him. And at that hour he uh, and at an hour that he is not aware of. And he, so he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May the Lord God bless this reading from his word. Now, I am not sure if this will pass muster as a definition of a parable. But my favorite description of a parable is this that the parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I heard that from the late uh, Richard Bewes, uh, who was the rector of All Souls in London, and he himself learned it from his father, the missionary uh, Richard Bewes. So the uh, Cecil Bewes. Uh, so a parable then teaches an important theological truth, and it is constructed are with elements of everyday life. And it is that which gives it its uh, property of immediacy, in the sense that if you were to, all of us when we actually hear about a parable, will get this sense that immediately that we, we get what it means. I get it. Uh, although, of course, a little bit later, you may wonder, did, did I get it correctly? You know, and you're going to have your, your doubts. Well, the advantage that we have with this particular parable 
is that the Lord Jesus himself has given uh, a background or a premise on which to, to understand this parable. And this is in the first three verses which I've just read. Uh, Keep watch because you do not know the day your Lord will come. And if there's still any doubt, he goes a little bit further and says, so you must always be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect. And so this parable is about the coming again or the coming of the, the Son of Man. Uh, which is one of Jesus' favorite description of himself. And since, of course, he's already come the first time because he's already there in person with his disciples, he's obviously referring to his coming again, his, uh, his uh, second coming, or to use the technical phrase, the parousia. And I want to open up then the lessons of this parable in under three headings. Uh, first, I'm going to talk about two, the uh, put down, as it were, our two basic truths from which uh, to forward our discussion. The first truth, of course, is that Jesus is coming again. Uh, his coming inaugurated the kingdom of God, and that kingdom of God will be consummated by his second coming. And so we Christians live are between the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the second coming. And although it's uh, physically impossible for us to look at two directions at the same time, theologically, it is vital. We must keep an eye on both the comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes we uh, do it without our realizing it. You know, when we take the communion, what do we say? We say that we take this bread and wine, proclaiming the death of our Lord until he comes. That's the first coming and the second coming in one sentence. And you must keep an eye on both. And the second truth is this. We do not know when it's going to happen. And that is, of course, the tension between that is what's problematic, isn't it? You know, how do I prepare for an event that, uh, which I do not know uh, when it's going to occur? And that's the lesson here. That's what we have to learn. So that's the first point I want to make, all right? And I hope uh, we are all agreed on that. The second is then the parable tells us about the danger of wanting to know an exact date, an exact time. In fact, what I would say is that if you want to know the exact time, that it is actually, in fact, disobedience, isn't it? Now, if your Lord and your Savior tells you that you don't know, but you want to know and you pretend you know, what does it say about you? That you know more than your Lord and your Savior. Oh, what does Jesus know, you know? What does he know? Uh, I, I'm quite sure there's a way of us finding out how uh, the coming. You, you are saying basically you know better than your Lord. In fact, uh, what is actually, what the, the wicked servant in the parable is doing is 
what we would say in uh, modern parlance, the uh, playing the percentages. Uh, it is just to look at certain data from the past and probably some experience. I'm from there to make an educated guess about the second coming, all for the purpose of your own benefit, to do a shortcut as well, to make things easy for yourself. And of course, the parable tells you that if you do that, it's not going to end well. It's not ending well. So don't do it. Now, I think that many of us, uh, especially the older ones, uh, would remember the many incidences in the past when we actually have things, uh, cults and groups which actually are very certain of the second coming of our Lord Jesus, isn't it? Yeah? So what they do is that they prepare for it by some of them even, probably even selling the properties and so on. And they will gather at one place, actually anticipating that the Lord will come. And of course we know that in every of those cases they are uh, disappointed. Now we may uh, have a laugh at them, but really thinking about it, it is also very distressing, isn't it? It's distressing because it brings such dishonor to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the whole, it becomes very public. People laugh at it and say, look at this uh, deluded people. Now, it, it's important for us to realize that uh, it is not a modern phenomenon. It's actually, even in the earliest times, the apostles themselves has to contend with this issue of the coming of, the second coming of our Lord Jesus. So I'll give you two examples, right? And they are actually opposing ends of, uh, well, they are, they, are, they are two entirely different problems. The first, of course, is a poor, uh, the, the problem that the Apostle Paul has to deal with, with the, uh, when, with the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians. You notice that it, uh, Paul, in both his letters uh, to the Thessalonian uh, Christians, spoke about the problem of idleness. Uh, so he commands in one instance uh, to the church members, keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive. The words always go together, idle and disruptive. And then he says in another occasions of a group of idle people, idle Christians, that they are not busy, rather they are busy bodies. Idle and disruptive, not busy, but busy bodies. Not a very good witness, not at all a good witness. Now, you, if you look at the text and you analyze it, you would find that at least, at least one of the reasons for that idleness uh, was their conviction that the Lord Jesus is going to come again. Very soon. And if that is the case, what's the point of working? Didn't do end well. It's a very bad witness. Now, let me at this point emphasize that Paul is not asking us not to think about the second coming. That's important for us to put down. In fact, Paul says 
very nice things about the Thessalonian Christians. Listen to what he has to say. In the very beginning of the letter of 1 Thessalonians, he says that, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, can you imagine, you know, Paul saying something about our church, any church? Uh, you're a model. You're a model, William. Now, what is the property of that model, right? What is the, the, they tell, they tell. In other words, what, the amazing thing here is that they tell means to say the neighboring observers of the church says this. And they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So if you want to be a, a model of a Christian church, in Paul's view, it is this, that you turn decisively from your past, your idol worship, to the living God, and not stop there, but to serve Him, to serve God. So it's, it's not just a passive turning, but having turned to then serve and to wait for His Son from heaven. In other words, Paul is not saying don't think about the second coming. The second coming is vital in our thinking as Christians, but rather he is against this obsession with knowing exact time for the second coming. So now, let me bring things to the case of Peter because he has to contain with the opposite error, and these are people he, he calls uh, uh, who thinks that, well, Jesus is not going to come again. You know, so many years have passed, generations have gone by. You say he's coming, he's not coming. This is what they say. He says about these uh, 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 people who, or rather he quotes them. He says that, that these people say, where is this coming that he has promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything has gone on as it has since the beginning of creation. Over a generation of past, people have grown, they have grown old, they have died, another generation came up, where is this coming from? Now, I always, uh, I, you know, my impression when I read this particular passage is that it could actually be a backlash, isn't it? In the sense that, you know, if these, there are these Christians who are growing up and, and you get this generation of people who are keep pushing the fact that, oh, Jesus is going to come again, you know, uh, probably within this year. And, and when you teach that, there's a backlash. Because people would say, well, you know, a year has gone by, two years has not gone by, Jesus is not going to come back. So the conclusion it draws the other extreme, that Jesus is not going to come back. So, the, so this teaching could actually be the reaction to another false teaching. That's why we have to be very, very careful about that. And it is in response to this particular, of course, his, his, uh, Peter's uh, response was a lot more than what I've said, but certainly one of the is in response to this that 
Jesus, uh, Peter gave this uh, very famous response. It is an, I think probably all of us know that uh, uh, that a, a day to God is just a thousand years, and a thousand years is just a day. But I also, uh, you know, as I read this, uh, noticed that that Peter and the wicked servant of our parable are really a study in contrast, isn't it? Because really both of them are given more or less the same uh, assignment. What was Peter's assignment? We remember that, that uh, when he was reconciled with our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, after his resurrection, after Peter has betrayed him, there was this beautiful conversation between Peter and the Lord. And what was the instruction that was given to, to Peter? God, my ship, feed my lamb. And that's the kind of, that's the same instruction given to the wicked servant. Feed my servant, uh, guard my servants, make sure they're fed at the correct time. Almost the same instruction. You know, and both are aware, both of them are aware of the coming again of their master. And yet, whatever their, their, their actions, while the wicked servant wanting to do the minimum was obsessed with knowing the exact time of his master's return, but Peter was constant in his devotion, not at all disturbed by the timing of his Lord's return. So be Peter, not as be the wicked servant. Well, which brings me to my third and my last point, and that is to say that while the time of the second coming is not known, the lesson of the second coming is very clear. The time is not known, the lesson is clear. In fact, uh, both the, 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 the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the advent, or the, the, the incarnation, and his second coming, the parousia, informs the Christian walk, regardless of the time of the occurrence. Now, uh, because of the war in Ukraine, the Ukrainian church has a really broken uh, fellowship uh, with the Russian church. And so I think begin, I think it's beginning this year, or last year rather, uh, they now celebrate Christmas on in the Western tradition, that's the 25th of December, uh, instead of the uh, Russian, or rather the Orthodox tradition, which is 7th of January, right? Because they observe the uh, Julian uh, calendar. Now, that caused, I mean, I, I suppose you can imagine, isn't it? Suppose Christmas was not 25th of December, but 7th of January. You know, you, you build so much of your culture around the 25th of December that if you move it to the 7th, it's, it's going to cost. But it's not a theological problem, is it? It's a cultural problem. Theologically, there was no problem at all. I mean, you know, we, we celebrate Christmas often without, <laughs> you know, we have to doubt whether it's actually on the 25th, you know, because the theological, the lesson, is the same. What are they? Well, how about 
the way I will relate with one another. How do I think of another person as better than me? How do I walk another uh, mile in someone's shoes? How do I uh, relate to any one of my brothers in church, in, in the church, whether they are whatever their status? Well, Paul taught us Philippians chapter two. I mean, you are you are all very, you know, familiar with that. It's, a, it's actually the incarnation. Your relations with one another, we should have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in the nature of God, did not consider equality to God as something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by nature, uh, nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made into human likeness. The incarnation, the coming, the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ informs our relationship with our neighbors, our church members. Well, second thing is about mission work. Now, where do these crazy missionaries in the past, you know, get this idea, you know, that when you bring the gospel to someone, you, you actually not only go there and then tell them the gospel, you actually go there and, and live with them and become a citizen of their country, and, you know, marry the woman there. And, but where did they get this idea? You know, people like Hudson Taylor go into China and become a Chinese, actually. Where did that get their idea? From the incarnation. And I can say that Andrew, myself, Christian, Li Cheng have benefited by that kind of incarnation mission. We not only heard the gospel from them, but we learned Christian life and Christian walk from the missionaries that came to us. Where did you get this? The incarnation. The first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter it's 25th or 7th of January. And lastly, how the word of God comes to us. You know, as I speak now, uh, we were invited, uh, the church, our church was invited to an event uh, in that village, near the village that we used to visit. And it... Uh, it is actually the, for the occasion of the launching of the Bible in the Jahud language. And Jahud is actually a tribe, one of our Aboriginal tribes. And there was this translation being made of the, of, the, of, the, of the Bible in that language. And we were invited to that for that launch. Of course, I can't go because I'm here. Yeah, I, I was, we were invited there. Now, so when... Uh, God wants the child people to, to, to know the gospel. Uh, what do we say to them? Uh, uh, go to Manchester and read the, the manuscripts. Learn Greek. Learn Hebrew. No. You translate the word of God to their language. Translate to them. How did these people get this crazy idea? Incarnation. The first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the word became flesh and lived among us. Now, I would want us to know that this is also our lesson, 
about from uh, about uh, the lesson uh, the, the, the 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 case uh, with the second coming or with the uh, the the parousia the, the second coming of our Lord Jesus the return of our Lord Jesus we do not know the time but the fundamental lesson is clear and there are two the one is actually what we already said just now from the parable itself directly and that is to say that we serve our Lord not knowing of his return and we just serve because we love him not for any ulterior motive uh, and not for uh, any kind of uh, gain on our part it is just because we love our Lord so in the case of Peter whether he comes within his lifetime or later on his witness was constant whereas in the case of the wicked servant it was trying to game the system so that it works out to his advantage so the first lesson of our Lord is, is our service that we serve our Lord Jesus Christ because we love him and not for any other ulterior motives and second reason is actually not within the text itself but actually is everywhere in the New Testament and it is this and it is this that we live between the first coming of Christ when the kingdom of God is inaugurated and the second coming of Christ when the kingdom is consummated. That is to say, what God has begun, he then brings to perfection. And we live in this, uh, this in-between time. On a personal level, the, Paul, the, the prayer of Paul is a prayer for all of us by virtue of his second coming. He prayed this, he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The first coming, the second coming, the inauguration, the consummation, we live between that. And that's why our Christian life is always forward and backwards. Of course, physically we can't do that. <coughs> we can't look forward and backward. But theologically, it's vital. Let me conclude then that I give two examples of how this conviction of the second coming in war, in, <coughs> in, informs our, our Christian walk. Just, just two, uh, and you, I will leave it to you to work out the rest. Now, the first of it concerns our growing to maturity and holiness. <coughs> The Apostle John uh, has this marvelous uh, teaching in his uh, first letter, the first letter of John in chapter 3. Let's see what he says. <coughs> Dear friends, now we are children of God, but what we will be, what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have hope, this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. So you notice the, 
the tension, the, the, the status we are now, and what is to come. There is, first of all, we are children of God, but we are not Christ-like children of God. Have you occurred to you? Is that not a sobering thought? I'm a child of God, but often we stop there. I'm a child of God, but we are not Christ-like. That's why we often see, as you look in the mirror or when you look at other people and say, I didn't know that a Christian can can behave that. Well, that way. Well, the thing is that, in fact, God has inaugurated a work in you. You are a child of God, but you're not Christ-like. And when will that be, be, when will that be happen? Well, when he comes, but we know that when Christ comes, appears, we shall be like him, or we shall see him as he is. But in the meantime, what happens? When Christ appears, the promise, and this promise for, and for all of us, it will be, we all continue to have this hope in him. And so I think this, 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 this teaching is very much needed in, uh, in our church. When we see how, when we see much unchristlike behavior, not in, our, not in others, but in ourselves, we often get very discouraged when we look at ourselves and when we see others and say, well, you know, that's pretty non-Christian. Well, the, the, the truth is that uh, you are walk, going in that way. You're on a journey, and we often, and often when we say, how, how can we, how can we, or how can they call themselves Christians when they behave so badly? When really, is that yes, we are children of God, but we are not completely Christ-like yet, and that's a journey, and that will be consummated when we see Christ, and when He's here. His presence. The second is my final example. Consider what is uh, that is at the heart of our parable, right? The heart of our parable in uh, that we just read just now, and that is the refusal to accept that we do not know the time of the Lord's coming. And so we are, we are, we are, we are because of this. That's a weakness on our part, and therefore we are very open to anyone who will tell us a story about when he is coming, and, and we we are prone to to, to listen to that. Uh, so, the, of course, the apostle Paul himself knows that uh, you know <laughs> curiosity will be the death of us. So, you want us not to be blown here and there by every wind of teaching. But you see, there's another way of guarding against that unhealthy curiosity. And it's to understand that our knowledge will only be complete with the appearance of Christ. Uh, the one... Uh, sorry, let me just... So my final example uh, okay, so uh, sorry uh, the uh, Paul the apostle Paul had this very uh, important teaching on this point uh, about our 
lack of knowledge and our growth in our knowledge are in the first par first uh, chapter, uh, the, the chapter 13 and first Corinthians. That's a very famous chapter on love, isn't it? But he said this, you see, now we know in part and now we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. But you have to wait for it. Now we see a reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now we know in part. And then I shall fully, I shall fully know even as I'm fully I shall fully know, even as I'm fully known. Now, I want to look at it, and I've just read something from the the Apostle John. I wonder whether you notice that there is this similarity with this, the teaching of uh, Paul. All it notice that this same teaching of instead of Paul, if if you just replace knowledge. Children of God with knowledge. Dear friends, this is what Paul, uh, John says, Dear friends, we know God. This is what, uh, ra- uh, rather, let me just uh, try to put this truth all right, to, to you in the language that Paul, uh, John would have put it just now. So instead of, uh, uh, so, the same teacher, we replace children of God with the word knowledge, alright? So, dear friends, we know God, but what we know is not complete. But when Christ appears, we shall know Him fully as we shall see Him as He is. So, that is the tension between the now and the then that we must live with. And that is why it's so very important for us to know, uh, as uh, as I said just now, to look both ways to the incarnation when Christ came, and to that point when the the the, the his salvation is is made complete and consumed, consummated. So, therefore, let us then conclude by exhorting all of us to. Avoid these two extremes. All right, it's it's very important. The first extreme, of course, is to be obsessed with the timing of the uh, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second extreme, of course, is to deny it or don't think about it at all. Uh, the correct way is always to have this what is known as double vision. Although all looking back and forth, although that's physically impossible, uh, that is to look back at the uh, the first coming, which is the, our salvation when we, our uh, the start of our heavenly journey, and of course then to look at the second coming when the salvation is consummated, and that is what we must always do. So the so we must always ex- avoid these two extremes. Right. The one, one extreme is to be to want to know the exact date of the, the second coming. Uh, the other extreme is to don't think about it at all and just leave it completely out of our theological thinking. That is wrong. Right. 
So the long for completion of the journey when the imperfect is made perfect, what is obscured is made clear, and with the second coming, we became not just only children of God, but now we become completely Christ-like children of God.